the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, nothing says sword-swinging high elf who is not at all pleased with the forces of evil like the golden hue of a Hickman painting. Gift certificates abound as the holidays, like Mario Kart, enter lap three and get faster and harder to complete without falling into an abyss. Plus, part 40 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have an interview with another legendary Bain cover artist this time. So far, we've talked to David Mattingly and Bob Eggleton on the podcast, and now we add Steve Hickman to the list. Steve has done over 150 Bain covers over the years. He's probably best known at the moment for his 14 covers for the Man Kazin Wars story anthology series and for David Drake's RCN series. Steve is the winner of seven Chesley Awards, a Hugo, plus he's been a longtime judge and instructor for the Illustrators of the Future contest. Steve's latest cover can be found on Man Kazin Wars 14, which is now out at booksellers everywhere. We'll talk to Steve in a moment, but first, Lara Haywood Corey joins me for the news. We're heading into last-minute shopping time, so we want to make sure everyone knows about the Bain eBooks gift card. You can put any amount that you want on a Bain eBooks gift card and print out a certificate so you can have it wrapped and have it under a tree, and you can give it to anybody who loves great science fiction and fantasy. That's right, and we should also remind everyone that if you happen to get a new tablet or new e-reader for Christmas or winter solstice or whatever... You can populate it with 43 free ebooks from the Bain Free Library. These are some really good books, too. A lot of them are the first in a series, like Eric Flint's 1632 or David Weber's On Basilisk Station. The way to find both the free library and a link to purchase gift cards is to go to bainebooks.com. Right there on the left sidebar, the left sidebar, you'll see those links. If you're using the mobile site, by the way, we'll put those 43 ebooks in your account and they'll be instantly downloadable or readable on the web just by signing in to the mobile site. So we're still beta testing the Bain mobile site? Yeah, we're getting it pretty ironed out now. If you want to use it, go to bainebooks.com forward slash mobile. And we're giving out a limited supply of free ebook coupons so that the beta testers can put the ordering system through its paces. In fact, it might be interesting to see what kind of response we get from our podcast audience. Let's give a free ebook voucher, in other words, a free ebook to redeem at bainebooks.com, to the first 10 people who write in and ask for one. Hey, is the address mobile at bain.com? And it's mobile at bain.com. Yes, it is mobile at bain.com. M-O-B-I-L-E at Bain.com. And please, if we send you one of these uh, ebook vouchers, use it on the mobile site to order your ebook. So help us out and help yourself to a little loot. The address to send in for is mobile at Bain.com. Sounds like a win-win situation. I want to welcome Steve Hickman to the podcast. Hi, Steve. Hey, how is everybody? We're doing all right. Uh, Steve Hickman has been a Bane artist from the get-go. Would you say you've done over a hundred Bane covers, Steve? I was thinking about that while I was looking through my cover proofs, and I'm guessing it's, it's got to be 150 to 200, closer to that, uh, maybe even more. Um, it's it's quite a quite a few of them. I seeing those uh, cover proofs, it's title after title I've forgotten about. I found what had to be the first book I ever did for the non-existent Bain books is the first one I sold to Jim Bain when he was an editor at Tor Books, and that would be uh, Magus Rex. It was a painting he bought out of my portfolio when I went around looking for work over there. He'd actually been an editor at Ace Books, as a matter of fact. Oh, sure. I met him first at Ace, and then met him at Tor, and then he started his own company, Jim did. Yeah. And uh, so I've been working with Jim 
good Lord, for 40 years. Well, that's a, and, and from the, the beginnings of Bain, we're going to have our 30th, uh, 30th anniversary next year, 2014, will be 30 years of Bain. And Whoa. that'll be 30 years of Steve Hickman, too, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder. You can do a lot of paintings in 30 years. Steve has been an artist and illustrator for over three decades. Uh, I guess longer than that now. <laughs> Four. <laughs> He's the recipient of a Hugo and five Chesley Awards, and lots of others. He's been seven Chesleys. Seven. <laughs> My God, it just keeps piling up. He's been a judge in the Illustrators of the Future contest. He's the cover artist for the entire run of David Drake's RCN series. He creates both fantasy and science fiction art with equal aplomb. And here at Bain, he's probably best known for his 14 covers and counting for the Man Kazin Wars anthology series uh, created by Larry Niven. Man Kazin Wars 14, by the way, is newly out in trade paperback. Steve's Bane covers include a great favorite of many, which is um, also Tony Weisskopf, our publisher's favorite, that being the cover of Sassanac, uh, a book in the Planet Pirate series by Anne McCaffrey and Elizabeth Moon. Tony calls it the Mona Lisa of SF cover art, and I'm looking at it right now, and I see what she's talking about, that enigmatic smile that the main character has on there. She's in a giant spacesuit looking out. Steve's recent covers for Bane include the covers for many of our classic reprints, such as Andre Norton books, Children of the Gates, and Ice and Shadow. But boy, that Ice and Shadow cover is great, by the way, Steve. I love it. Oh, thanks. I think you'd like that, too. It's hard to impress my wife after 40 years, but uh, she looked at that and told me I needed to get it framed up, so I got it hanging in the, in the house here. By the way, before I forget, that Sassanac cover, uh, your comments on that cover will delight the model for that picture, Suzanne Fleury, who has also posed for uh, any number of other uh, of the uh, David Drake covers. You'll recognize uh, her on just about every one of them. Uh-huh. She's, she's a natural for that. She gets that look in her eye and, and uh, look out. There was another reference photo I've got of her with a shotgun looking deadly, and boy, I tell you, you get that dead look in the eyes, and <laughs> it's like, is this the sweet young person that was just here a second ago? <laughs> well, you're also the artist on Wynn Spencer's upcoming Tinker novel, Wood Sprites, and on Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's uh, Leoden Constellation short story collections one and two, and just, it goes on. Steve, uh, your work can't be categorized, I'd say, but... When we think of a Hickman cover, I think we think of a romantic, maybe Baroque look, lush, maybe intricately composed. Um, and there's this golden hue you've achieved that's often present. And Kelly Freeze said of your work, and I quote, No one since Rembrandt has mastered the use of gold the way Hickman has. Maybe you'll give us the secret to that. Uh, but first, are you still painting on canvas? Um, what's your medium these days? I like to do any kind of painting now in oil color. I used to use acrylic a lot for the science fiction stuff. And uh, it's a very traditional uh, regimen that I use for that. Stretch my own linen canvas and size it with hide glue, and then you put the ground on it, like an oil ground or an acrylic ground paint on that. And, uh, you know, the whole deal, heavy canvas stretchers. So you end up with an object that a collector can prize. It's the straight uh, traditional thing that's been used for hundreds of years. Uh, the secret of painting gold, by the way, is to drive yourself nuts trying to do it. <laughs> you know, what you have is a reflective surface that never tarnishes, that has its own color and yet reflects the ambient color of whatever predominant color scheme that you've got. Uh, and I can't let it alone, but it drives me nuts every single time. It's one of those kind of things like clouds that you just paint until it looks right and then you stop. You know, uh, clouds are even more bewildering because they do all this reflective kinds of things and they diffuse light through themselves and it's just completely illogical. I still haven't figured it out completely from all the clouds that I've seen. Hudson Valley is full of clouds, by the way. Very good place for clouds. Uh, that's where you are? Yes, that's where I am at the moment. Very picturesque, poetic place. Washington Irving country. Sleepy Hollow. Oh, yeah. 
So um, can you take us through the process of creating a book cover, how you go about it, how long it takes, etc.? Well, this happens uh, slightly differently or radically differently every time I approach it. Uh, the average book cover, which I did for years before they started sending electronic uh, manuscripts, is to sit down and read the whole thing and mark off possible scenes. Uh, this is when the publisher, who respects my judgment, will give me, you know, uh, full reign on selecting the scene that I want to illustrate, which I think is very important. There are some art directors that think they're earning their, their pay for the larger companies that, uh, will tell you which scene to do. I mean, it saves a lot of time, but some of them will even send this inane little sketch that completely lobotomizes the whole vision process. That's why I have been working for Bain uh, continually since uh, Bain was founded is because of the artistic freedom. Once I got Jim's respect on uh, being able to uh, sell books, he let me literally do anything I want with the proviso that if I got way off into the weeds, he would push the panic button and say, we're committing book aside, <laughs> and then I'd start redrawing things. But uh, you start with a manuscript, select a scene, start doing drawings. Sometimes uh, I will get the idea for a book cover talking to uh, an editor on the phone. The whole thing will just appear immediately, and I'll do it that way. Um Sometimes I get through the entire sketch approval process, color sketch and painting, and then the whole thing clicks into place, which is really annoying. And then I have to redo it, which I have actually done uh, with Jim one time um, for the toxic spell dump by Harry Turtledove. I got, there's actually two paintings that are involved in a fragment of the first painting, which I have since destroyed, uh, provides a sort of decorative thing to the table of contents. But the painting on the cover is literally the second complete painting. So I've talked to other artists about that, too, where they've, they've actually started over when they, the notion, the way the cover should look, clicks in. And that's what uh, uh, painting is all about. Imaginative painting like we're doing is the most difficult because you can't always find models for what you have to do. You, to paint pictures of. There's no dragons out there. There are no magic flying cities out there. And uh, you have to look at nature using that as a springboard and make things believable. And uh, that takes a vision. And after a while, the more you use it, of course, it's like weightlifting. The better, stronger the vision gets. But sometimes the vision process for whatever that mechanism is in there just gets stuck. And uh, you can try too hard. You can go through the whole thing. Even Frank Frazetta was talking about that. I was talking to him about that. And he said, you know, sometimes I work for a whole week trying to figure out an idea. And for him, who could do a painting in a day or a day and a half or two days, uh, that was an incredible use of brain power. When he was working on the Conan covers, he would really literally turn them around in his mind until he got something unique. And it really worked. It sounds like that every painting, every cover, every painting is a, is a start over process almost with, uh, with you as far as conceptualizing. I mean, of course you still have your skills. It's true. That's a very good way of putting it. It's a, it's a first time process. And you have to, dig deep into the whole process of inspiration. I think the mechanism that goes into a creative person that actually keeps working is very complicated. I don't I don't want to try to understand it because if it isn't uh if it isn't broken, I don't want to fix it, you know. But uh you you just do what you do. It's very instinctual, but there is a matter of inner vision. And that inner vision springs from some kind of emotional inspiration, an obsession with the beauty of nature, say, that you want to pass along in some form. It's like a little kid that sees something that's got to tell somebody about it. I must have been really annoying as a little kid. My parents were very patient 
fortunately, <laughs> they were very supportive of the artwork, too. So it uh, sort of developed as a habit. Yeah. Can you tell us something about your background and development? How did you get to be Steve Hickman, multi, uh, multi-Chesley Award winner, artist extraordinaire? Well, that's uh, interesting. My parents in the Foreign Service, and we traveled around a lot in the process uh, of stopping over in Beirut at the airport. I found a copy of Famous Monsters of Filmland that had an article by Dick Smith on making latex masks, foam latex masks. So for a long time, I wanted to be a makeup artist. So I learned how to do all this uh, lab work and make lots of crazy stuff, which I still do, as a matter of fact, occasionally for little theater uh, productions around here. And then after seeing uh, Roy Crinkle and Frank Frazetta's covers for the Ace Burroughs reprints in the 60s, I got diverted into wanting to do that kind of magic stuff. That magic was just as powerful as the Dick Smith thing. Frazetta and Crinkle took the classical form and added that element of vision to it, an absolute magic. And that was a real education. I'd gotten art history for years and years and couldn't figure out why we were learning art history. Because in the days before photography, any painting was priceless because that was the only kind of image you could hang on a wall. So there was lots and lots of formulaic stuff. Classical music had a lot of formulaic stuff. Maybe all art has a lot of uh, filler. But... um then came the Renaissance, and a lot of the visionary art took the form of religious art and classical stuff. So it's all about vision. Well, you can get kind of stodgy in the classical form, too, but uh, somebody with this elemental kind of Sicilian imagination comes along. Frazetta had this mystical vision of things that was just enchanting, and it, it generated an entire two or three generations so far of fantasy and science fiction artists, imaginative artists. They all adore Frazetta. Even though some of his work even looks simple or simplistic by comparison to modern paintings, there's an element to it in its simplicity that is just untouchable. Would you put Frazetta as a, uh, as a, as a foundation science fiction fantasy artist in the same way of like Heinlein being a a foundation golden age writer or oh no question and roy crinkle has to rank right up there with frank frazetta as a matter of fact it was roy crinkle that got frank into doing the covers uh and a lot of uh crinkle's work has that same uh mystical kind of quality to it a real magic quality and uh, crinkle himself was a fascinating individual if you've ever seen back to the future Think of Dr. Emmett Brown, and you've got Roy Crinkle. But Roy was even more thoughtfully eccentric than, than uh, Emmett Brown. Very, very quirky character, but uh, just an absolute magical kind of person. Both uh, he and Frank Frazetta were really fascinating and very good to us a long time ago when we were kids. So what about kids today? You've worked with illustrators of the future. What path do you recommend to young artists who want to do something like what you do? First thing I would say is you have to learn how to draw. And where you learn how to draw is you get a copy of George Bridgman's Complete Guide to Drawing from Life, learn the human skeleton, and learn how to draw people. That was the first thing that uh, Frazetta did, as a matter of fact. You keep going back to Frazetta, but uh, you can't pick a better example. He borrowed that book for three days, drew everything in it in his notebooks. Um, and his notebook amounted to nothing more than a steno pad with lines on it. But he drew all the pictures in Bridgman and then returned the book. And the guy said, well, you can keep it uh, if, longer if you want. And uh, Frazetta said, that's all right. I've drawn all the drawings in my notebooks. You have to learn how to draw, and out of that, you will learn how to make your visions convincing. And whether you do digital or traditional media, uh, you have to know how to draw. It's much more direct and easy. You're not learning two things at once. If you just have a pencil and a piece of paper, you know how to draw. If you know how to draw and paint, by the way, the translation to digital media is an afterthought. 
if, if there is no transition, you just pick up a different medium and you're doing the same thing. So there are advantages to one and there's advantages to the other. But you have to know how to draw. That is the vital thing. And I have talked with other teachers, other professional artists that teach occasionally. And they're, they're just shaking their heads. The kids nowadays just sort of grow up and think they're entitled to start working for companies and stuff, especially if they know computers. But the computer isn't going to do it for you. You have to do the drawing. It's all, it's all your work. There's no trick to it. You have to know how to do it. And there are certain things that you have to know in your visual, your mental toolbox. One of them is human anatomy. If you learn the human skeleton, there's only basically one other skeleton. It's a quadruped skeleton. And there are variations on the quadruped skeleton, such as the horse and the dog. But if you know those two body types, you can draw anything. If you can draw a human body, you can draw spaceships and other stuff. But you have to have a sense of design, and that's all about what hand uh, you're dealt with in the talent line. You play your cards with what you've got. <laughs> know how to draw. Let's talk about literary influences for a moment. You, I know you're a huge Tolkien reader. Um, who are some of your other literary favorites, and um, how many have you illustrated covers for <laughs> over the years? Wow, that my favorites, my literary favorites, go outside my genre. Uh, Neil Stevenson and Bill Gibson, William Gibson, are absolutely brilliant writers. Those are probably my two favorite writers living today. Patrick O'Brien for the Sea Stories. Brilliant. Oh, it just goes on and on. <laughs> that would be a whole podcast right there, and I would have to sit down and make a list. We did a list on Facebook the other night of favorite favorite books. Um, I never thought when I was in high school reading Robert Heinlein that I would be doing a lot of paintings for Robert Heinlein. I did uh, several for uh, Bain books and then did some more for the Heinlein Trust out of Houston. It's planning on um, issuing a limited edition leather-bound thing. It's going to have about eight or nine of my paintings in that. Well, you were talking about uh, Twain following a Twain trail as well. Yeah, uh, Mark Twain is always uh, one of the most powerful uh, American literary figures. He's credited with creating the American voice. I was just reading Huckleberry Finn recently. The Innocents Abroad uh, and Roughing It are the three that I love the best. Um, there's some really amazing stuff in all of those books. Uh, Tom Sawyer. So there's four that I keep rereading. Charles Dickens just writes like God's anointed. Uh, and it, and there's that relentless needling uh, clever use of commentary all the way through his books in uh, in Dickens. Yeah. Do you find that uh, reading uh, plays into your work, or you do do you do it to escape your work? Both, mostly to escape, but uh, sometimes it ties in so beautifully. Um, when I get a manuscript like for the Man in Wars, it's like getting paid to read the finest science fiction some of the finest science fiction short stories written today. Uh, when I first started doing the Man Kazin covers, I knew I was going to be doing a series, so I wanted to create something that had a uh, series of visual images that I could maintain. So I actually deliberately did not read the stories, but I talked to Jim Bain about what the characters were like and the basis of it, and then invented my own imagery. And then the uh, authors started describing the scenes in the previous cover in their stories. So it sort of synthesized right into the uh, the work. Occasionally I will talk with authors on the telephone and work out things like that, and they'll describe the covers perfectly right into the stories. Uh, Mark Van Name is the most dramatic example of that. Every time I've done a cover with one of Mark Van Name's books, and they are brilliant books, just wonderful writer, um, nobody can read these stories before he turns them in complete to the last, you know, comma and uh, punctuation mark. So he will describe a scene that I'll select. I'll paint the picture. When he sees the picture, he actually writes that uh, literally into the story. 
So every one of the the covers you'll see for Mark Van Names were done that way. A cover I did for John Ringo's Princess of Wands was like that. Uh, we were crunched for time, so I just talked to John on the telephone. He's running uh, a brief synopsis of each of the stories, and I saw, I got a flash of a cover, and I went, hey, here's what I'm seeing. And he said, great, it's in the computer, I'll just do it that way. I'll just describe that scene. Actually, two of them, because uh, we ran into a marketing glitch there. Um, when John was describing the story, I didn't get the sense that it was a science fiction story. And what I was seeing was a classic fantasy thing. So the one figure that I painted in there has fantasy clothes. And uh, Tony called me and said, look, we, we need to put this in the science fiction thing. So I painted, I got another model and uh, dressed in contemporary clothes and uh, painted the figure and photoshopped it in over the other one. So there's actually two in uh, two different sections. There's one in the fantasy section. There's one in the science fiction <laughs> section with the same title. Uh, that was that's a, a nice painting. I like that one. I still have that one too. Well, what are your favorite covers? I I mean, uh, it's hard to pick among them, I'm sure. But do you have any Hickman covers that you can say, yeah, I, I really got that one right? Yes, actually, I was looking through the uh, uh, the cover proofs, and I think my favorite of all of say maybe about fifteen of them is the John the Balladeer cover I did for a Manly Wade Wellman collection of short stories. And um, there's actually an eerie story behind that. I was painting on some picture for some company that was material that I was just not really into. Uh, sometimes, the, you know, if you've read the stories before, uh, you have a lot of enthusiasm for it. There's just all the uh, cover possibilities just bubble up. Well, anyway... I was painting on something I didn't want to do particularly, and I actually said out loud, why doesn't somebody send me a cover of something I'd like to do, like uh, Who Fears the Devil by Manly Wade Wellman? Okay, well, so I went to bed, got up, and there was an answering machine message from Betsy Mitchell, who was the head editor of Bain at the time, saying, we have a cover we'd like you to do. We're not sure it's your material. It's, it's John the Balladeer by Manly Wade Wellman. So that was eerie. You know, I thought, well... Maybe I better just do this right, you know. <laughs> um, you say something like that, and it happens, and it's just about time to uh, get serious about yeah. it. So I, I did the best cover I could, and it's still one of my favorite paintings. And uh, uh, David Drake loves it. Said that um, the editor was edited by Carl Edward Wagner. Mm -hmm. He loved it too. I think Manley had passed on at that point. Well, they were uh, Wagner and and David Drake were uh, are, were great friends with Wellman. So I understand. I I really enjoyed talking about Wellman with uh, David Drake. And then another cover that I really loved was the Planet Pirates uh, cover. The, the woman in the um, powered armor, flying powered armor. And that's the same uh, in that Sassanac series. I used Suzanne Fleury as the model for that one, too. And I took the pose from a picture in Aaron Space Magazine of this uh, airmail pilot, you know, with a three-day growth beard and a cigarette standing there in his leather flying suit, Wild Bill Potson or whatever his name was. And uh, that one just, that did it for me. And then um, the first cover I ever did that, that a publisher called me up and said, we love this cover, was uh, a David Drake cover. Uh, let's see, what one was that? Lacey and His Friends. Yeah, I'm sitting here looking right at it. Ah, yeah, the, everybody just, they called me up and said, we really love this. And man, I worked, or I, I worked and worked and worked. This is before Photoshop, and I was doing... Uh, tracing paper overlays to design all the machines, painted acrylic. It's really detailed. It's a nice little painting. And um, yeah, he's got that. He's got a look on his face that just uh, communicates that character perfectly. Yeah, and uh, David was happy with that too. Uh, that was a great character, and that was that. I was so impressed reading that book. Uh, that was probably one of the first really good books. I had been doing uh, reprints of this old stuff, the, the Golden Age, so-called, uh, for Ace Books for years. 
and uh, from the ace doubles and so forth. And, and that was, I had the artistic freedom there because nobody cared. Nobody was going to read all that old stuff. They were just going to reissue it. <laughs> and that was where I sort of learned to paint covers. I was thrilled to get a manuscript you know, or a book to read. You know, I'm, I was, They weren't buying stuff out of my portfolio anymore. I was actually doing specific stuff. But this was the first real uh, book that I got. You know, I thought, wow, this is great. So I was glad that I got the reaction on that. And then there was a second cover that I did that actually everybody in Bain Books thought enough of to actually call me up and say, we really love this. And we got a great reception from the business meeting where they show it to the reps and the uh, distributors and stuff. Oh, yeah. The that was the first Man Wars cover. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is why I have a real loyalty to Bain Books is because I get feedback. The rest of these companies that I've worked for are so impersonal. You know, you're just a hired help. And if you do something uh, that they really love, the last thing they're going to do is tell you about it because you might ask for more money, you know? Um, another reason that I like working with uh, Bain Books is because Jim just would try literally anything. Uh, he let me try to take a picture of a sculpture for the Cthulhu, uh, the Tales from Cthulhu Mythos cover. I did my first completely digital cover for a Steve White book called St. Anthony's Fire a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I discovered Photoshop, oh, The Change Winds by Jack Chalker, uh, Bain actually issued two different versions of the same cover that I had uh, tweaked in Photoshop. Because Jim said the collectors love that kind of thing. So it was just, it was delightful to try out all that stuff. The foil f***ing thing that uh, has turned into a kind of a plague was my idea, too. Because when I was uh, just starting out, I did private commissions that way. I would do a, a complete metallic underpainting and glaze transparent colors over it. So that's where a lot of that um, underfoiling <laughs> came from. This um the we reissued the uh the first man Kazin War Wars uh anthology this year, the twenty first the twenty fifth anniversary edition. And it hey, no kidding. Oh yeah, it's got your cover on it. Cool. The original. Okay. Another one that I really like is the Dracula tapes by Fred Saberhagen. Um that just turned into a, a nice bit of work and uh Jim went in there and tweaked it slightly in Photoshop just to uh, bring up the highlights and so forth and so on. Uh, and it made the cover look just beautiful. And the painting is is really cool. I like to sit there and look at it. It's got all these details. Just the character of uh, Dracula started with the historical Vlad Sepesh, which is how the uh, title is a play on words. That's why... Jim chose the Dracula tapes from Vlad Sepesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm looking through these other ones. Good heavens, there's some new ones. Bertram Chandler first command cover with the, all the colors and people in gold flying spacesuits. I love doing that sort of old pulpy stuff updated. Yeah, you did all the, um, all the covers of our uh, our John Grimes Bertram Chandler uh, reissues the uh, the John Grimes saga one two three four we got them all yeah oh, and another one that um, the authors were delighted with was Fallen Angels and I actually was given a chance uh, I I called Jim up and said look I need a, I need some work here and he gave me the cover again I said look I can't you know. Everybody loves that first cover. He goes, I know. I just want to see if you can do better than the first cover. That when I got introduced to Larry Niven, of course, I get introduced to Larry Niven over and over again. And it's gotten to be the point where I think he actually knows that he has seen me before. <laughs> Larry is almost as absent-minded as I am. And um, Jerry Purnell, his partner, is such a character. We had been fellow guests at uh, in Chattanooga two weeks before I saw him out in Los Angeles at this party. And <laughs> Jerry's going, I'm willing to bet that my partner doesn't even remember that we were out there judging this masquerade contest. And he brings uh, Larry over and said, uh, 
Jerry, this is Steve Hickman. You remember him from Chattanooga? And uh, <laughs> Jerry is standing with his eyebrows raised like, um, you know, he's waiting for the punchline, right? <laughs> Did we judge that masquerade contest in uh, Chattanooga? Larry is still waiting, and he goes, this is the artist that did the Fallen Angels cover. <laughs> and then Larry goes, oh, that's a good cover. <laughs> well, at least he, uh, he might not remember you, but he certainly remembers those covers. Well, he remembers me now because I sent him a T-shirt with a dragon on it, uh, which was done from one of my designs, and uh, it's his favorite T-shirt. So I think that that was a sort of a visual cue. I, I love both of those uh writers as people and as writers uh, jerry Purnell and larry nevin are really uh those would have to be influences too on on the literary side uh this is the only maybe they've done another cover for something else they've done i keep forgetting the titles at this point well what are you working on these days yeah i've got three projects going i just finished my second novel a fantasy novel I'm working on uh, sculptures, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft-based sculptures and fantasy-based sculptures. Get ready to try and uh, get a line of those going. And a series of fantasy commissions uh, with the, the, the nice canvases and all the rest of it. I'm painting uh, <laughs> the fifth version of uh, an idea that I got a long time ago that never quite worked out. Occasionally I get hold of an idea that I feel a certain vision for, and I just can't do it. A picture from The Metal Monster by A. Merritt went through three different incarnations. The third one took me like 20 years to finish, you know, completely redoing it and repainting it until I was happy with it. And this one is uh, the fifth version of a really interesting, it's a, a young lady riding on a winged horse with a city floating in the clouds in the background. The fantasy, high fantasy stuff, basically. So when you get a commissioned piece to the people, um, it, it, does it vary, or does somebody tell you what they would like, or is it they're just like, we want a Steve Hickman painting? The last one that I just mailed off was one of those things where they said, we want a Steve Hickman painting, and I said, what, do you, what kind of stuff do you like? And uh, we just agreed all the way down the line on this, uh, you know, the imagery and stuff. He likes dragons. He likes ladies with no clothes on. So I've got this supernatural sorceress-type lady leading a dragon through this strange fantasy landscape. And uh, that one was just completely uh, generated during the phone call. Sometimes I'll have sketches that are just these ideas that won't leave me alone, and I'll go and pester uh, some people that, are, that uh, I know and say, hey, I uh, I would really like you to commission this because I want to do this painting, and I'll show them the sketches, and if they like it, they'll do it. And then sometimes people say, I want a Tolkien painting. Now, those are about the hardest series of paintings that I've ever done. Uh, illustrating Tolkien is very difficult for the... Um, odd reason that Tolkien was a genius who could take stereotype fantasy stock characters and do something completely magical with them because of his command of language and his ability to invent fantasy languages that nobody's been able to touch since. But you're left with that whole archetypal stock character uh, lineup of Elves, dwarves, goblins, and heroes. Okay? Now, that is so easy to fall into the default setting kind of uh, idea characterizations uh, to get beyond that into something that approaches the, the poetic magic that uh, Tolkien is able to generate in a reader is really difficult. And I was doing this raised border treatment and this you know, raised scroll thing, which... You know, makes the things twice as hard anyway, so I wasn't making it easy on myself. But um, I've got another one of those uh, Tolkien commissions pending, and some other interesting things. I worked out a whole series of ideas in a subtropical realm based on my first fantasy novel. And, uh, ladies scantily clad shooting bows and arrows in tropical settings with gold domes and so forth, which I love painting. There's just something really wonderful about all the uh, 
interesting shapes, starting with the ladies and going through the trees and the... Uh, if you paint fantasy architecture that will fit in the setting, there's something really nice about the whole thing. It's an artistic uh, uh, resonance. There's a, a vision to it that I can really be enthusiastic about. Well, do you have any um, words of wisdom you want to leave us with? Words of wisdom uh, are so subjective. Um, I can pass along a couple of bits of advice, and some of them sound so simple as to be completely laughable. But the more you think about them, the uh, more profound they get. It's like Roy Crankle. He would throw these things off. He said, you know, if you're drawing something and you see something in the, the drawing you don't like, take it out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that that uh, that rang a bell, and I've been thinking about that ever since. Every time I get into a thing, there's something vaguely the matter with a thing. I'll just look at it and say, oh, I don't like that. I'll take it out. Works like a charm. It's brilliant. You know, learn how to do the skeleton. That's uh, That was Frank Frazetta's advice. Well, I I did that. Those of us who aren't artists, um, looking at a looking at a book cover, it, you know, you get it immediately. It sells the book to you and says something about the book to you, um, and but then it grows on you over time because you keep looking at it every time you open the thing. What could uh, what could you look at to see what the artist has done other than just uh, it, what it evokes in you? Well, that's a very powerful kind of thing, and it's um, I know when I buy a book for the cover. Uh, and I should know better if anybody ever did. Then it's then it's a very important part of it. I re keep rereading the Mastermind of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, just because it has one of the most absolutely brilliant and uh, wonderful fantasy covers ever painted. It's a collaboration between Roy Crankle and Frank Frazetta. That that magic of the book cover is what put Conan back on the map. I mean that's just. Uh, pulp writing, but you get a magic cover to it, and it provides a visual key that provides an entire background to the whole series of stories. It's an amazing thing that you can do with that. I swear that's why I keep working at it, because I want to be able to create work that will keep sparking people's imaginations in years. You know, I've actually talked to... Uh, uh, generations of other artists that, uh, you know, I've been doing that. It's kind of weird hearing that because it seems like yesterday I was saying that to somebody. Uh, and since I work in sort of a vacuum, a lot of artists do that. You just sit there and you just do the paintings. You don't know if anyone's seeing them or not. And it's almost a mild shock when somebody has seen them and uh, has been collecting the covers. That's what I love about Facebook. This is great marketing research. You find out there's a lot of people that have been seeing this stuff. But uh, very few people have seen the important work, and that's why the art book is going to be really important, which will be out soon, folks. Very cool. Very cool. Well, we've been talking with Bain cover artist extraordinaire Steve Hickman, the creator of dozens and dozens and hundreds of Bain covers. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us, Steve. My pleasure, Tony. Thank you for uh, calling up for the interview. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering, low-level conflict with the ancient, aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and on the verge, a region at the edge of its empire, rebellion, is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the verge. Brutal tactics and puppet dictatorships are par for the course for the OFS. Rebels opposed to the oppressive regimes can't hope to match the military might of the OFS without outside aid. Royal Manticore Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the RMN forces in the nearby Talbot Quadrant. 
Gold Peak is sympathetic to the rebels, but is looking for the right place to strike a blow on their behalf. In the Mobius system, solid ground and space forces have arrived to put down rebellion against the Solarian-supported puppet government. When Royal Manticoran Navy Commodore Sir Avers Terakov shows up with a sizable detachment of Gold Peak's fleet, it's the Sally's turn to sweat. The Royal Manticoran Navy has arrived. Here is Part 40 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. And I don't give a good goddamn who the hell it is. Brigadier Francisca Usel snapped. But, ma'am, Commander Watson began desperately. That's a super dreadnought. We can't fight a super... That's enough, Usel barked. You don't even know who it is yet. At those acceleration rates, the only people it can be are the Mantis, Watson replied. And if it is... And if it is, they have exactly zero right to be there. Usel shot back. Mobius is a sovereign star system. The Mantis have no legal standing here at all. Ma'am, I realize that, but given what happened at Spindle, I think we have to assume... You're not going to assume anything until I tell you to, Commander. Is that perfectly clear? Usel glared at him from his communications display, gray eyes flinty. He stared back at her for a handful of seconds, then nodded jerkily. Better, she said in a marginally less angry tone. She sat back in her chair and waved one hand in an impatient gesture. I understand why you're anxious, Commander Watson, but let's not let panic start dictating our reactions, all right? Yes, they hammered Admiral Crandall at Spindle. And yes, as far as I can tell, the Mantis don't have a single functional brain cell among them but not even Mantis could be stupid enough to actually open fire on a Solarian Navy squadron in the territorial space of a Solarian ally. With all due respect, ma'am, they fired on Admiral Bing in New Tuscany, Watson responded, and her nostrils flared. Yes, they did, Commander, she agreed coldly. But New Tuscany wasn't a Solarian ally at the time either, and whoever this is, it's not that crazy bitch Gold Peak either, not in command of a force this small. No, she shook her head. This is some captain or commodore or junior rear admiral, and whoever it is probably doesn't even know we're here yet. Ma'am, you're senior to me, Watson said. But their track record suggests to me that they might just go ahead and pull the trigger after all. Francisca Usel closed her eyes and counted to ten. What she really wanted to do was to rip someone's eyeballs out, Watson's preferably, but almost anyone else's would have done in her present mood. Why, she wondered, why does every single idiot in a Navy uniform think the frigging mantis are ten meters tall? Why can't any of them see that it doesn't matter how good their damned missiles are, they're one little pimple of a star nation, and frontier security should have squashed them years ago instead of letting them get so fucking full of themselves, them in their precious wormhole. They think it makes them the lords of creation, that their shit doesn't stink. But they're about to find out differently, aren't they? That maniac gold peak's gone too far, and now her Precious star empire knows exactly how a cockroach feels before the hammer comes down. Personally, Francisca Usel couldn't wait for that moment, and she was getting sick and tired of so-called officers who couldn't get their heads out from their asses long enough to realize that any manty with a brain bigger than a radish had to be scared shitless of pissing the league off even worse. Commander she said after a long, fulminating moment. There's no way the Mantis would risk another shooting incident with the SLN, especially in a podunk little system like this one. Whatever they may have managed to do to Admiral Crandall at Spindle, I doubt they brought their damned system defense pods along with them. And even if they did, they have to know what would happen to them in a real war with the League. Gold Peak might be crazy enough to push it, but by this time, 
their government has to be trying to figure out some way, any way, to crawl out of the crack she's gotten them into. If these bastards had gotten here before us, managed to help the frigging terrorists overthrow President Lombroso, and then sign some sort of treaty with the new government, that might be one thing. But they don't have even that much of a legal fig leaf. That leaves them with no standing at all under interstellar law, and the League would have every right to assist Lombroso in resisting any demands they might make. That's a tripwire nobody in command of a force this small is going to want to cross. Watson looked at her calm image, trying to believe she might be right. Unfortunately, he didn't think she was. And even more unfortunately, she was in command. So what exactly do you want me to do, ma'am? He asked finally. I don't want you to do anything, Commander. Just sit there. They're the ones intruding into Mobian space, so let them do the talking when they finally realize we got here before them. And if they start making threats, ma'am? Then you tell them to go straight to hell, Commander, she said flatly. Coming up on 31 million kilometers, sir, Commander Lewis announced. Thank you, Stilt. Terakov took another sip from the cup of coffee Chief Steward Agnelli had just delivered to him, then looked at Lieutenant Montella. Are you ready to transmit, Adelante? Yes, sir. Montella grinned at him. She was rather looking forward to this. Whenever you are, sir. Fine. Helen? Terakov smiled at Helen and held out his coffee cup. Take care of this for me for a few minutes, would you? It probably wouldn't help my hard-bitten Commodore's image. Oh, I don't know, sir. She smiled back as she took the cup obediently. Personally, I think it might actually underscore your aura of confidence. Of course it would. Just don't go drinking it. Wouldn't dream of it, sir. Joanna would hurt me. Terikov chuckled with a bit more amusement than he actually felt, then turned back to face the calm pickup. All right, Adelante, let's do it. Sir, Lieutenant Chang announced, I've got a calm request from the Mantis. Commander Watson looked up quickly. The announcement was scarcely unexpected. In fact, the tension of not hearing from the Mantis had been twisting his nerves tighter and tighter as the silent juggernaut of those tactical icons swept steadily towards his own outnumbered and outgunned command. They'd been in system for almost two and a half hours now. In fact, they'd made their turnover and begun decelerating 48 minutes ago. The range was down to 31 million kilometers, under two light minutes, and he'd started sweating the moment it dropped to 40 million. If they'd brought along any of the missile pods they'd used on Admiral Crandall, he was inside their envelope, and they were still better than 20 million kilometers outside his. He knew everyone else on his command deck could do the math as well as he could, and he'd seen the tension growing in his officers' faces as the minutes crawled past. Yet there was something about Shang's announcement. Calm down, Branston, Watson said. Let's not get too excited here. But, sir, they're asking specifically for you, and they're transmitting from less than 40,000 kilometers out. What? Watson straightened in his command chair. What do you mean specifically for me? By name? Not by your name, sir, but they're requesting SLNS Oceanus's commanding officer. Watson stared at the communications officer. None of his ships had activated their transponders, so how the hell could the Mantis possibly know his flagship's name? And what was that about 40,000 kilometers? How could anybody get a communications relay that close without any of his sensors even noticing it on its way in? And why should they bother to, even if they could? My God. The thought hit him like a sudden bucket of ice water. My God. They didn't just get a comm relay that close. They got sensor platforms that close. 
close enough to read ships' names off our goddamned hulls, and we never saw a friggin' thing. The implications were terrifying, and he suddenly wished Francisca Usel was up here in orbit and he was safely down on the planet. Very well, Bronston, he said as calmly as he could, suppressing a sudden urge to lick his lips. Put it on my display here. Yes, sir. The small communication screen deployed from his command chair came to life with the face of a dark-haired, olive-complexioned young woman in the black and gold uniform of the Star Empire of Manticore. For a moment, nothing about her struck him as peculiar, until he suddenly realized she was in uniform, not wearing a skin suit. I am Lieutenant Alante Montella, Royal Manticore Navy, she said. Am I addressing the commanding officer of SLNS Oceanus? You are, he said, his mind still grappling with the absence of that skin suit. It was like a deliberate declaration that the lieutenant on his display was beyond any range at which he could possibly have threatened her, which was true enough, he supposed, but still. I'm Commander Tremont Watson, Solarian League Navy, he continued. What can I do for you, Lieutenant? He sat back to wait out the 200-second light speed delay, but please stand by for Commodore Terakoff, she said less than two seconds later. He twitched, his eyes flaring wide open. That was impossible. They were still more than 30 million kilometers away. Nobody could... Oh, shit, a little voice said almost calmly deep down inside. They do have FTL comm capability, and if they've got recon platforms that close, platforms that can send back targeting data faster than light. He closed his eyes for a moment as the implications crashed over him. Good evening, Commander Watson. A blond-haired, bearded manticorn officer replaced Montella on his display. The manti wore a Commodore's insignia, and his blue eyes were remarkably cold. I am Sir Ivars Terakov, Royal Manticoran Navy. Every Solarian officer in the Madras sector knew that name, and Watson felt a solid lump of ice materialize in the pit of his stomach as he recognized it and remembered a star system named Monica. We are so fucked, that same little voice whispered. Commodore? He replied out loud, fighting to sound normal, and knowing he'd failed. May I ask what brings you to Morbius, sir? Yes, you may. Terakov smiled thinly, and his voice was cold. We're here in response to an urgent request for humanitarian assistance. Humanitarian assistance? Watson heard the faint, sickly edge in his own voice as he repeated the words. I think that's a suitable way to describe it, Terakov said. Certainly, in light of the news broadcasts we've been monitoring for the past couple of hours. Sweat beaded Watson's hairline, but this time he said nothing. There was nothing he could say, really. Let me put this as clearly as I can, Commander, Terakov continued after a moment. I intend to put a stop to the butchery the Solarian League has been actively abetting in this star system. I intend to put a stop to it now, and I intend to take whatever steps are necessary to accomplish that objective, which brings me to you. In what way? Watson asked, cursing the slight catch in his voice. As I see it, you're part of the problem, Terakov told him flatly. You escorted the intervention battalions currently operating on Mobius Beta from the Madras sector, and you've been supporting them since your arrival. Those icy blue eyes turned even colder. We've already recorded the evidence of kinetic strikes, Commander Watson, so let's not waste anyone's time pretending you don't know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm willing to assume, for the moment at least, that you're not the senior officer of this abortion of an operation. As such, I presume you were following someone else's orders, which gives you at least some legal cover. As one serving officer to another, however, 
We both know exactly what you should have said when given that order, don't we? So I'm afraid the technicalities of your chain of command don't buy you a whole lot with me. Something shriveled inside Tremont Watson. In shame this time, not in fear. But Terikov gave him no opportunity to defend himself. You have two options, Commander, but only one chance to pick between them, the Manticoran said. You can choose to take your escape pods and small craft and scuttle your ships, or you can choose not to, in which case I will blow them and you and every other man and woman aboard them straight to hell from a range at which you won't even be able to scratch my paint. As a general rule, I don't much like butchering people who can't fight back. Given what's been happening on this planet, I'm willing to make an exception. Those ice-blue eyes bored into Tremont Watson's soul. You have ten minutes to decide whether or not I do. Terakov clear. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 40, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, Christopher Chifani, and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the applause of 50 million golden robots strung out across the Milky Way, and a couple of silver dragons one universe over, for Bane cover artist extraordinaire Steve Hickman. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>